0: Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Renee Gerlich, a writer and artist based in the Wellington region, New Zealand. Her background is in arts and education, and she was a researcher for the 2016 social history documentary, The Heart of the Matter, about education reform under New Zealand's first Labour government. Renee is currently working on a self-publishing project she calls her Brief Complete Herstory, a series of seven short illustrated books that take the reader From the Big Bang to the Present Day. Her writing has appeared in Feminist Current. She is a contributor to the upcoming anthology Spinning and Weaving, published by Tidal Time Press, and her popular 2019 talk, Delivered with the International Women's Day Committee in Brisbane, Transgenderism, Neoliberalism, and Rape Culture, can be viewed on YouTube. I welcome Renee Gerlich to Savage Minds. I'm most excited to speak to you because Over the last, well, since January, I've been having a lot of guests on to talk about things that are related to, as you well know, identity politics because of Biden, his choice to erase the rights of women and girls. And similarly, what's happening in other countries to include north of the border there, the arrest of a father in Canada. You came to my attention because of your work on a protest with Charlie Montague at the beginning of 2018, when you both dropped a banner from the front of the Auckland Pride Parade, reading, stop giving kids sex hormones, protect lesbian youth. And then later that year, your Phantom Bill Stickers project brought you again to media attention, where the company Phantom Bill Stickers had hung posters for your women's suffrage projects commemorating 125 years since women had gained the vote in New Zealand, which I found shocking because New Zealand was before most other countries for women gaining the vote, which is great. Can you though frame these two projects in terms of where you
1: were coming from? Yeah, well, first I have to say, um, Julian, it's really something to be speaking with you at this particular point in time because um, and I, I'm thinking we might talk about this a bit later, but I have been, I took a step back from from activism about a year and a half ago, um, a big step and for, for big reasons. And so talking about this now is almost like talking about another lifetime. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, but I guess, 2018 is like another lifetime for most of us at this point. Um, it feels like every year yeah. <laughs> it's a new lifetime. But um, yeah, so 2018, as you say, Charlie, Montague and I are jumping the fence at the Pride Parade. Um, so the lead up to that was that um, my attention was drawn to the issue of transgenderism in uh, maybe about 2000 and 14, which is actually the year that I think the Pride Parade started to get the new um, corporate funding and um, started to become a big deal again and you know um, transgenderism became a big topic on the mainstream media and things like that. Um, and I started talking about it, partly because it was what um, I my partner at that time, um, Pala Molisa. He was. From, he's from Vanuatu. His parents were instrumental in the um, independence struggle in Vanuatu in the 70s, 80s, um, and he'd grown up with um, radical feminism. His mum was uh, a radical feminist, who's one of those incredible women um, who was part of a nationalist movement and and criticised it as being uh, misogynist and and received a lot of backlash for that back in the 80s so he kind of was carrying her torch and it was through him that I was first introduced to radical feminist literature so I started reading it voraciously like a lot of women do when, when we first come to feminism and th- this was something that was giving me a lot of hope for a, a long time that um, on a lot of feminist issues these days, a lot of people seem to be um, quite, I guess, ignorant, but the thing is that when women, often when women click, they catch up so fast, (laughs) Um, and that's what I did. Um, So I read a lot, and it really affected me very deeply, Um, and I, I started to speak about prostitution and transgenderism in about 2015. And at that time, I was really the only person Mm -hmm. in New Zealand who was talking about the issue of transgenderism. So I think that that gave me something of a unique experience or, well, I see it as kind of like an especially quintessential experience because I was dealing with an issue where, in which I think women's isolation is quite central. And I was, the only person speaking about it, in quite a small population that's, you know, quite isolated New Zealand from the rest of the world. Um, And so my reaction to that was basically to just try and work with as much integrity as possible in terms of understanding the core issue of patriarchy operates on the basis of women's isolation Women's isolation from one another is how patriarchy uh, creates the um, the pain that it creates and sustains itself. You know, if women can can um, join hands and recognize one another's struggle and situation, then you know that's a very big threat. So I've always saw my main battle as being about that isolation and breaking down the walls between women and doing that by acting in solidarity, basically every step of the way. So I spent a good several years um, consistently. Everything I did was about how do I express you know, solidarity with the women? Um, the way I'm being treated like right now, is that an okay way to treat a woman? if not, what do I believe women should be able to do in response, because I'm going to allow myself that in solidarity with women. So my whole mode of being and way of operating was was premised on solidarity. And through that, I thought um, I would meet other women, I kind of felt like in a way I was making like a signal flare out of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it worked, I became sort of quite visible in a way that was very disproportionate to the fact that I'm just like one grassroots individual and not an academic, I'm not in any institution. Um, You know, I had a retail job. I didn't have a platform to speak from, but I got this kind of notoriety and people found me. um, Wait a sec, Renee, to interrupt you briefly,
0: you were in a retail job because I read and I've seen some of your other interviews Is that the job you lost because of these activists?
1: Yeah, I worked in an art supply store selling paintbrushes and, um, yeah, things like that, pencils.
0: I have more sympathy for people working in these kinds of jobs far more than those of us. I'm coming from academia myself. Had I stayed in academia and fought the fight, it would have been almost impossible to get rid of me. Academic jobs, no matter how many academics are being really threatened and unright, you know, it's not justifiable on any means. Our jobs are very secure comparatively. This is shocking. So this is the leftist movement that goes after people working in,
1: shocking. Absolutely. And so I was lobbied out of my retail job uh, a few months before the pride action where I was a little bit out of my job, and um, I met uh, Charlie Montague, who's like my younger sister. I love her to bits. Um, not not long after that, and then we um, we did that action together. But that was that was the context of my life at the time. Yeah, and I have to say as well, since you mentioned about you know we're familiar now with some of those stories about academics being pushed out of their jobs about you know JK Rowling um, and those kinds of cases. but yeah I had a retail job and I have to say that the position that I was in as someone who's speaking from a blog in a retail job and getting pushed out of that is really uh, definitive in terms of shaping my ideas about the nature of identity politics the nature of the backlash we're facing. I never actually used the phrase cancel culture. I don't consider myself to be a victim of cancel culture. I didn't have a platform to be canceled from. Um, so my whole perception of what is the nature of this beast um, comes from as someone who was, didn't, you know, I was, I they stopped me from getting um, through the door. Like, <laughs> you know, they stopped me from getting a look in. I've been censored so much before I even got to say anything. And um, so that's really central to my, my perspectives on, on things. Well, this must have shaped the
0: way you see the left because for me, aside from the silencing of women with an allegedly progressive narrative of identity politics, which these folks offer and which I view as anything but progressive, I'm shocked by how ID politics is moving further away from focusing upon more important issues, such as those central to the rights of women, girls, and to class issues. Poverty, you would think so during a year of hellish lockdowns, a year plus. And so I I can no longer speak about the left personally. When I say left, I have to put it in air quotes or I have to say the liberal or liberalized left because we are- only
1: ever talk about the liberal left, yeah.
0: Yes, Yes. because we're living in an extremely conservative era that puts Thatcherism remarkably in a bright light comparatively. You know, this is the shocking part. Oh my gosh, the golden age. Well, exactly. If we can't say what women are, we can't speak. And when I say we, I'm not just talking about women because now in recent weeks, they've been going after gay men. You remember years ago I was told about the cotton ceiling back in 2012 now it's the uh-huh. boxer short ceiling so the misogyny in the left was never properly addressed in my opinion from 1968 onward within the left obviously it was dealt with within the likes of Dworkin and others but then you had parallel to Dworkin you had the Gloria Steinem types moving forth trying to just let's get along and be nice I was wondering if you could frame this because I've seen what you've done and and we have very similar politics on the left where there's a complete elision, if not a betrayal to all Mm. the class issues that heretofore the left had been mandated to cover. Now that's gone. So I find, personally speaking, like I'm shocked when I'm like longing for Thatcherism. That's crazy. And uh, what has happened that the left... We are now seeing not just a bit of misogyny; we're seeing deep, deep, deep misogyny coming from the left. That's yeah. always been there. This isn't new. It's just evidenced itself. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Um, I'm torn between going down two different tracks to answer that question. So I might go down both, one after the other, if that's okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> So, my first response to that would be to go back to uh, my experience of being lobbied out of my job, and I might have to explain exactly what I mean by that. Um, And because that experience caused me to really stop and take stock and go, what the hell just happened? And that's when I started asking myself, what is the left? Who is the left? Um, And actually, what are these political traditions that and categories that we continue to refer to in a day and age where a lot of people are saying it's no longer really relevant or meaningful to talk about liberals and leftists and conservatives anymore because the landscape has changed so much. And so I asked myself what all these terms mean for me. Um, And part of that was, uh, so what what happened was um, I, when I was living in, in the city in Wellington City, and I had this job, um, probably most people I associated with would be on on the liberal left. I was also involved in anti-war protests and um, protests against the Trans-Pacific um, Partnership Agreement, so corporate free trade. Um, and so I, I was, you know, mixed with a lot of liberal lefties, We all identified as various shades of, you know, some of them were like the Manicists, or, you know, who I now think of as like, just libertarians in leather jackets, you know? Like, uh, those kinds of people. And then uh, some of them were more, you know, social enterprise inclined, but all sort of from that paradigm. And one thing they all had in common, however much they might argue about their views on um, you know, capitalism or um, uh, any of those big issues. They, they all wanted me out of my job. Um, so why, why, what was that about? And I, I wrote an essay, actually, when I started to piece things together. And I have to say, Robin Morgan's book, The Demon Lover, was one of the texts that really helped me um, get a handle on that. And I found that one of the things that was standing in my way in terms of understanding what the left was, who liberals are, is having some belief or some sense that in politics people's stated values have any real meaning. So, you know, when, individ- when, when liberals talk about individuality or individualism and freedom that they're actually expressing something that they prioritize or when leftists say that they're anti-capitalist or, you know, that they're all about workers' rights, that they're they're actually expressing something, a value that they prioritize. And I started seeing all of that basically as being rhetoric. It's rhetoric, it's secondary, it's not primary. The primary thing in politics is loyalty. Who are you loyal to? And it's very obvious to me that left or liberal, you know, the loyalty is is to men, and I I kind of started to understand this whole liberal left paradigm as kind of um, at some point the left was about workers and the liberals were about kind of you know male. You know, it was more entrepreneurial, more its uh, you know the underpinning ideology of capitalism. Um, and as this, these two paradigms, as the left has been assimilated um, into liberalism, you've got this one giant beast of a of a political uh, paradigm which can absorb from both, you know, at will really. So. Um, and I see the the loyalty as basically being any man who isn't served by the right. So liberal leftists will defend any man who isn't served by the right. And they don't care if that means that their values or their principles or their um, ideas then start inevitably coming into conflict. Because these men don't themselves agree on anything like Muslim men and gay men and men who say that they're women (laughs) and workers, you know, these are now, the liberal left now has this kind of giant vocabulary where they can draw on and weaponize um, any, you know, defense of any of these men depending on what's convenient to them at the time. But you know, the the, the paradigm is, is basically without principle, you know, this, any discussion of freedom or identity even, or, um, or in, you know, the, the rights of the individual, it just holds absolutely no water at all, you know, because what, what does it mean to talk about the rights of the individual and at the same time, you know, be slicing into people's bodies? as part of a medical experiment? Certainly,
0: we see the hyper-medicalization of personality occurring, which is par for the course with neoliberalism, both in terms of selfhood and in terms of economic capitulation to larger capitalistic issues. And it's it's no coincidence that people are going to this new public Sector of wokery to get rubber stamped approval in the absence of real community. I mean, this is one thing that a lot of people fail to see who support this nonsense is that this is not how you create community, even Uh among women. But I mean, communities are not built on people just coming out and saying, Well, my daughter is now a boy and pat me on my back, but there's a social process here that resembles some kind Mm. of religious right to me. And it's very uncomfortable when I see parents supporting this all in the best interest of quote, unquote, love. And I see the trans process as a surrogate for love. I think in late stage capitalism, where people are working three, four jobs, I speak to people all the time, it's amazing how many jobs we all have nowadays. They're barely scraping it together, especially since the pandemic. And the way that They show love to their children is through this kind of magic wand. I will respect her personal pronouns. My son is now, you know, and there's little care for what this means to the larger group. We're living in an era of the paucity of community where Mm. people who see themselves as progressive, they're not. My whole argument is, as you see in the States, Republican, Democrats, same thing. And the difference is really about what T-shirt or jersey you're going to put on. It's like going to a Yankees game. Are Uh Are you rooting for this team or that team? But at the end, they have the same goal. And they work with the same people. They have the same backers. So what troubles me is that with the gender issue, the right has never been women's friend in terms of control of our reproductive capacity. But on this single issue... The right is far more progressive. It's the Republicans in the States and the Tories in the UK coming mm-hmm. out and saying, but girls and women can do anything. There is no such thing as switching sex. We all know that these are stereotypes and it's the left saying, oh, but if you're a boy who likes to make cupcakes, get thee to the clinic. It <laughs> seems that this left is far more conservative than the traditional conservative.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, um, there's, that, there's that characterization, that feminist characterization of the, of the right and the left as the Pope lobby and the Pimp lobby. Um, so obviously, the Pope lobby is going to have its own reasons for wanting to preserve um, gender distinctions that are also along the lines of sex. Um, and the Pimp lobby is, is I mean, that was when I was talking about going down two different tracks about this, you know, what is the left, or who are the liberals in question, that was the other one I had in mind was the influence of, um, you know, the pimp lobby, pornography, prostitution, because I feel like at the same time as the, and this relates to your question, your, what you're saying as well about community, um, at the same time as this liberal paradigm has been absorbing the left, we've also seen, you know, as we know, the rise and rise and rise of pornography. And um, I just, you know, I mean, I've, I've done a talk before that, that's um, on YouTube where I talk about, but use Naomi Klein's Um, book, The Shock Doctrine, where she outlines disaster capitalism and neoliberalism as disaster capitalism in order to, um, uh, you know, basically explain what neoliberalism is. And when I read that, it struck me, um, obviously, she doesn't talk about this explicitly as a social liberal herself, but... um, it struck me that pornography is a disaster it is a disaster that it is like a tsunami in the in, in, in a community context you know it's like the equivalent of a of a natural disaster in community it's has the same sorts of destructive um implications and so you know in the same way that um Following a natural disaster, um, as Klein describes in her book, like often you know, following a, a natural disaster or a military invasion, um, these neoliberal reforms um, can easily be passed while everyone is in a state of disorientation. So, you know, land is confiscated. Um, reforms that may have taken place in the interests of workers can be rolled back, and then there's this land grab and um, and so forth, and pornography does the same thing to our bodies and our communities. People get porn addicted, and then lo and behold, our bodies have been grabbed by, well, Big Pharma, among other um, (laughs) corporate entities, and um, yeah. So, But I feel like, one thing that's been going on over the years with this kind of advance of neoliberalism is that the frontier is becoming more and more intimate. Um, you know, like it, it, you, know, you were talking about the golden age of, of Thatcher when the frontier was like, you know, the unions. Um, and it just feels like the walls are closing in, really. You know, it was. The, and, the lesbian body has been a, a a recent frontier of neoliberalism and part of what enables that is first of all the fact that the left has been assimilated into liberalism and also the disaster conditions of porn which have basically rendered people insane and susceptible to this kind of obfuscation and um dissociation it's created a kind of you know just like rape and prostitution um um, cause women to dissociate if you uh look at that at a larger scale if you zoom out you get this kind of large-scale dissociation resulting from Mm -hmm. porn and prostitution um where people are you know dissociated from their bodies and and then susceptible to believing in all this ridiculous stuff because um, I, you know this is one of the reasons I stepped out of activism because I started to realize on a, in a, on a in a really deep way that you can't argue with someone I mean this is obvious but you can't argue with someone who's telling you that biological sex isn't real not just because um, you know what they're saying is crazy but because nobody says that because they actually believe that it's true they say it because of some it's it's pain and these and these distortions of of the mind and the state of being um among people that is that is causing us to to live out this um insanity so it's kind of it's a, it is it goes beyond reason it goes beyond the rational mind you know people people are People are going mad um, with with pain and disconnection and dissociation. And so, yeah, that's, that's now at the root of my own um, ideas about politics and um, how to respond um, to living in this world.
0: Well, we're living in a period that's very sick. If we can't talk about material reality, then we're really in this very liminal space of almost witchcraft, you know, and not, you know, in the, in the traditional sense, but words mean anything. There's a lovely book written in the 70s by French-Tunisian ethnographer Jean-Fevrette Sade called Deadly Words, and she looks at the way that language is used in healing. But words have a meaning, They have Mm -hmm. a meaning both in reality, but when the meaning goes beyond reality, there's an agreement amongst all participants that the symbolism is being used for a certain function. Differently from this madness, as you say, when people say that trans women are women, you know they don't believe it because if they believed it, they wouldn't even have to say it. So it becomes this oath of allegiance with an absent flag. And now that flag is everywhere. Mm -hmm. But at the time this this motto started it was twaw and (sighs) you're you're thinking as i wrote recently in a piece uh, the lady does protest too much because when Mm -hmm. one really believes what they're saying it's a truism that it doesn't need to be said in a way we don't run around saying the sun is hot air is good for your lungs so there's this very strange mechanism that neoliberalism as you rightly point out has evidenced within so many so-called leftists but these aren't you know these are not really leftists they're just neoliberals a, a slight shift to the left from the right and there's some cachet though today especially with social media clickbait for media enterprises that run one story over another like if I had just landed in any Anglophone country from another planet, I would think that trans people, if I were to look at the headlines, I would think these trans people are like 99% of the population because you hear a lot more about them <laughs> than you do about us mere vagina havers. Secondly, yeah. you, you, know, you, you look at the way that these political actions have been informed and the way they've been funded. Well, of course we're in This very strange tautology as women, because when I read that you had done both the Auckland Pride and the Phantom Bill Stickers Project, and I learned that your right to vote in New Zealand preceded that of the UK by many years, I was thinking, well, this is interesting. Why isn't it that we're talking more about the political rights and then the political disenfranchisement of women today? Why is this? being not only discussed second, it's not being discussed second, it's being erased as well, because these trans activists are what I deem to be men's rights activists, primarily. There's some women in there, and there's quite a few women doing the cheerleading who are not even transgender, but that has to do with the symbolic function of where women are in the pecking order. So women, of course, will throw a stone if they know that there will be a reward within the patriarchal structure for throwing that stone. But it means that we have to cycle twice as fast to even get any media coverage, if at all. And so how is it that people are still not waking up to this? Because it's not only men. There's a lot of women who say things like, what harm does that do you if if a trans woman's in your prison? They actually don't get it because they often come from the class of being able to afford a private spa, a private swimming pool, a private gym, so they don't have to worry about the same man they're referring to will never be in their spaces because they can buy their way out of it.
1: There's a lot of things that you just said that have kind of triggered my brain. and One of the things that comes to my mind immediately, actually, that that I've been thinking about a lot lately, is um, one of the huge differences between the second wave feminism And the little, um, what some people call the fourth wave that may or may not be happening at the moment. Or, you know, yeah. Um, And one of the huge big differences to me is that in the second wave, political analysis arose and emerged and came out of consciousness raising. Women got together in small groups and discuss their own lives, their own individual lives, with one another, and did that in a way that made them realize that they had a lot more in common than they thought. In other words, breaking down that that implicit isolation that exists between women. And then, as women started to, you know, take the wall from off, off their eyes and and reclaim their own individual lives and Leave dysfunctional, you know, situations and so forth. They also discovered that many of the obstacles in their way are obstacles in all of our way because they, you know, were oppressed as a sex class. Um, and then, out of women, you know, joining together to save their own lives and to support one another in the project of saving our own lives, um, you have this feminist movement that arises and the feminist analysis that comes out of it, comes out of women's lives, women's observation of the the patterns that we see, of the obstacles that we face, of the backlash that we face. And then with this whole neoliberal, uh, postmodern, backlash, slash, you know, takeover that we've experienced over the years, um, that movement has quite, incredibly um, being rolled back. I grew up, I mean, I was born in the mid eighties. I grew up not knowing, I didn't know about second wave feminism. And it's kind of astounds me that it, it, it was pushed back to the degree that, you know, someone who was born, you know, while it was still around, <laughs> um, could not even realize that it had existed. Um, and so, what I feel like, one thing that I feel is happening now is that with the internet and with the absurdities that we're facing today, with like transgenderism, women are starting to go, what is going on? Why are people saying men can be women and so forth? Feminist analysis offers us the only real answers. and. I feel like what we're living with now, in term, as far as feminism goes, is this phenomenon where the analysis comes first. The movement that we're seeing now is based out of the legacy, the, the, the analysis, the legacy of the second wave in, in terms of that analysis. So we have this m- movement now, which is political analysis first, I think, not consciousness raising. And this movement that we have, I believe, it seems to prioritise um, law reform, prioritise campaigning, prioritise lobbying. That's where you get this kind of gender critical phenomenon, which is striving to be quite publicly, politically palatable because of that emphasis on, on reform. Um, but if I contrast that with the second wave, I believe, and you know, you know facts don't care about your feelings is one of the sort of mantras of this current feminist wave. Um, And this emphasis on needing to be able to, as you say, talk about material reality. So there's actually something of a downplaying of the importance of feeling and experience, because first of all, we don't want to belong to that group of people who cares about feelings, (laughs) because they're all the snowflakes who are driving us insane, right? And secondly, um, uh, you know, we have a collective material analysis. Um, but actually, mm-hmm. if you go back to the first wave, I just think that that was a very much driven by the everyday heartbreak, passion, experience, and feeling of women. And I feel like we I just long to see a reconnection with that. And, you know, uh, this is also why I talk about this thing of um, values versus loyalty in politics, because I feel like in some ways, if you take for granted what these different political paradigms say that they care about, like if you take for granted that liberals say they care about individual freedom, and therefore I don't care about that so much because I'm about collectivism and material reality because I'm not a liberal, I'm a radical. But if you do that, then, you know, and take for granted those values and, and the way that they're distributed across the, you know, debates and across the landscape, you can then sort of throw out really important parts of just you know what a movement requires we need to care about ourselves we need to care about our own lives we need to feel inside our movements we need to love our any movement we build needs to be one that we love and that's why we fight in it not just for it and not just for um you know a a class of people that we talk about in a very Um, intellectual and abstract manner you know if we don't feel what we're doing i don't think there's much point anymore i think things are that bad
0: you're listening to savage minds and we hope you're enjoying the show please consider subscribing we don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you Now, back to our show. Where women seem to be caught up symbolically for most of society as something to be ritually made into a sex object you refer to porn and then porn in lockdown. Remember, Pornhub was offering free porn to men in the early months of lockdown in countries yeah. like Italy. Yeah, This was insane. So women are never really seen as true subjects, not even in 2021 no we were not at the table to discuss the gender recognition act in 2004 in the uk the same things happening in the us around a similar gender recognition act we're an afterthought so on the one hand you have legislators saying put the men who identify as women the men in dresses put them in women's prisons because we all know that putting on a dress means suddenly and magically you jump crime demographics And on the other hand, I can go out in my 501s and cowboy boots, and I will never get the same job opportunities as a man, not today at least.
1: (laughs) No, you won't.
0: (laughs) And then the fact that most people don't even have the time to spend on social media or the internet. They're too busy working Mm -hmm. at blue-collar jobs. Yeah, This becomes a dynamic that remains super elite in a way. What are some of the ways that we can get out of this? Because I know that you have spent the last year, you mentioned, working on your understanding of how the world of political feminism and the world of spirituality and healing fit together. What have you learned from your discovery this past year?
1: In that period, like around the time that I did the Pride intervention with um, Charlie Montague, uh, as she was called then, (laughs) um, and I was, I was also, as like I said, making a signal flare out of myself and in order to gather women together, um, I did that for several years and eventually ended up with a group um, of about 50 women who I made an effort to, uh, around New Zealand. So I made an effort to ensure that I knew all of these women. Some of them I did know before, um, so some of them were like, you know, people I had lived with, or you know, people I knew from other kinds of protest, or who eventually twigged to the issue of prostitution or the issue of transgenderism, and then I would invite them into this uh, online group that I was running. Some of them I met online through shenanigans, um, and. Then I would yeah make an effort to meet them face to face. It was a it was a very real little community, um, rather than just a an, a kind of an online group as important as they can also be. Um, and eventually, I exited from the group myself because I was still ultimately working independently, and I found. Um, that talking about things with about 50 people when I was ultimately had to be answerable to myself and my own conscience was a bit much, um, even though it was a very uh, supportive space. Um, And after I left this group, ended up forming a a lobby, a public public lobby. Um, And when they did this, something really interesting happened um, they decided not to associate with me or to acknowledge the the origins of the group, which were in my work, um, and, or anything like that. Um, and, you know, they started holding public events, um, including in Wellington, the city that I'd been trying to speak in for years, and I'd experienced, you know, being banned, you know, censored from the broadcaster I did an interview with them and they told me that they'd lost it um I had you know there was a phantom bill stickers thing which was unprecedented they hadn't um done that to a a paying customer before um blacklisted them um I was banned from as open a community forum as the Wellington Zine Fest, which is just a place where you can, you know, make handmade books and zines and pay for a stall and show up and um, I wasn't allowed. Um, so I was just thoroughly banned. And um, uh, so when, when you know, the held a held an event in, in that city and I couldn't even really go without triggering um, people. <laughs> who I thought were on my side. um, I was really gutted, and I also started to see parallels with, for instance, um, Women's Place UK, um, and how, you know, there's quote unquote, certain women who um, they are not too comfortable with, like Julia Long and Sheila Jeffries. Um, So I saw my situation as being part of a pattern. And I, but in a, w- in a way, in a bit more of a concentrated form, because of the fact that I, you know, I mentioned before, having started off on my own, built up this group through—I mean, maybe three years doesn't seem a very long time, but it was a three solid years of pretty dedicated um, activism, and you know, dedicating myself to bringing women together. So, having done that, and then to be cast out by the group uh, of feminists was a super, super, super confronting experience for me because one thing I think all women um, who start speaking out becoming explicit about their feminism experience is that you start realizing that, um, if you didn't know already, um, that various institutions and organizations who you may have previously thought would, would might protect you in some way, certainly won't. So, uh, you know, when I'd complained about censorship before to say the media council, very, very, very clear cases, they would still say, you know, censorship hasn't taken place because they could, because I was a woman by myself. So how, you know, they didn't have to worry about it or the ethics of it and, um, you know, Uh, I'd been to, you know, the Human Rights Commission about discrimination, you know, being banned from scene fest and nobody, there there was no um, accountability system or, you know, place that I could go where um, that was ostensibly existed to protect people from discrimination and censorship and and those sorts of things that would actually act on their promises in my case. So I already knew that I didn't have any support in the wider society. Um, and then I discovered that I didn't really have support in within organized feminism either. Um, and it left me feeling very, very strange for a month or so. Um, I started having this feeling that I felt like a ghost it was really funny because I would walk around with this this being really conscious of the fact that I was a person who wasn't able to really connect with other because I was not I was I wasn't acceptable so I would I walked around with this feeling of like other people can see me but they can't see they can't see the person that I am actually am I mean which is kind of normal but it was so heightened for me at that point um I just felt very surreal um and I really wanted not to feel like that (laughs) like I really wanted to know what what reserves I had to draw on what I had to understand in order to to unravel this feeling that I'd sort of evaporated into nothingness or that I'd I felt like I didn't exist somehow. Like I'd been through some kind of social death. It sounds melodramatic, but I'm actually quite sure that a lot of women could empathise with it still.
0: For my first piece, Julia Long was my first stop. And I was and remain quite shocked by how she's been sidelined by feminists in the UK.
1: I feel it. Like I I love Julia Long to bits and I... It's visceral for me. Well, she is one of the
0: kindest people I've met. And yet the way that she has been portrayed by women who often have a stronghold within the media itself, they not acknowledge her work. They sometimes plagiarize her work, I'll say. And then she's given no credit. And then when they do give her credit, like for the HRC protest she did with Kelly J. Mitchell, uh, Posey Parker, they make it into she doing something quite illegal when in fact, that's what protest looks like. And thank God they did
1: it. I know, suddenly direct action is not okay. Um, telling the truth is not okay. It means that you're, oh uh, yeah, yeah. Well, this is exactly the phenomenon that I started inquiring into because I was like, what just happened? I. Because the, one of the heartbreaking things as well, and this is why I was saying about the difference between the wave of feminism that we're currently seeing and versus the second wave, um, is like uh, the women who I'd um, been working with, I knew that they had all the intellectual tools, all the analytical tools understand my position. For a while I was trying to redeem the situation. I wrote an article called Feminists Must Think Radically to Reject Sex Self-Identification. And the reason I wrote it, um, in that article I wrote about how um, the threat of transgenderism, the, the essence of it is this thing of women's isolation. Women are isolated when you know they're having when they're being chopped into on the surgeon's table, you know it's it's isolation. like when women are punished for dissenting, they're isolated. like this is the part, the core of the threat. So when I saw that they were willing to dissociate from me, I was like, danger, danger, like you are the you're the seed of the thing that you're trying to fight exists now within your organization, and it's going to sprout. Like, you should weed that out before it grows. Um, and it will grow, and it did grow. Like, um, I, I know that this has been a problem for them um, ever since. Although, I have to say, um, I don't, yeah, I I want to detach from, uh, it's not a criticism they can do what they like but um yeah uh, I've I accept that now but um yeah so you know people who appear to have all the intellectual tools like a lot of the women in, who are in or associated with Women's Place UK they know why Julia Long for instance um is very Uh, passionate about talking about preserving the integrity of language, not talking about trans rights, not calling Mm -hmm. men she or sister, if he's wearing a dress, like, she's right, because the part of the reason for that is that, uh, gosh, this affront on women, and women's spaces and women's bodies, is just that an affront? It's not that suddenly everybody has amnesia and needs to be reminded about what testosterone is and what you know biological sex is. That's not the nature of the problem. Radical feminists are meant to be the ones that go to the root of the problem, right? The root of the problem um, is to do with, um, you know, investment and attachment this affront on boundaries so when we go around saying women are female we're not saying that to educate people everybody knows that from the age of two like everybody knows that the the, the trans activists know that and they not just secretly they know that explicitly when they go around saying you know men should be allowed to have state funded genital reassignment surgery because otherwise they can't be real women if they don't have a fake vagina, like that's a concession that I know what biological sex is, even if I'm expressing that in a kind of perverted, distorted way. But they know, they don't need to be educated. So when we talk about it, and when we say it, we're not educating, we're simply asserting a boundary. And if you assert that boundary, and at the same time, call men she, and, you know, say, Oh, I do care about trans rights, I just want them to be a bit um, more yeah, I just want women to be considered also. Um, those concessions, uh, they actually compromise. They, they represent compromises of the very boundary that you're trying to assert. So it's this massive contradiction. I'm quite sure that people understand that this is what Julia Long is about. But the disingenuousness really did my head in for a while when I experienced the same dynamic. And oh, um, I got into yeah. massive
0: trouble for defending her, and I've been trolled. Even during the lockdown here, I had some very high-profile British women target me with defamation because I said that they shouldn't defame these other women. I find it shocking mm. that the very same women who collude with right-wing media were calling Julia Long and Posey Parker a uh, colluders with the heritage foundation which they were not they attended an event but the thing is the funny thing is this and i respect what women's place uk has done but there's been a lot of criticisms made to them about their platforming men about the fact that they want to follow the true trans model and i say whoa that's how we're in this mess because i was in New York in the early 90s when people were just giving free passes to men in wigs and dresses and saying she ha 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 everyone knew they were they were men but that's how it starts not ironically is other right-wing papers that will run pieces by leftist women about this matter are also running pieces by trans-identified men because that's viewed as then we can knock the point home it's like women are not enough to speak about our own lives we have to have trans males speaking about it and this is the double-edged sword is the very same people who say i'm really a man i'm thinking of debbie hayton whose wife was in this documentary about him and his family and the wife looked incredibly sad and at the same time now she's supposed to be a lesbian and there's this whole elision of women's voices because who's speaking, who's allowed to speak, even within the times, who's allowed to say that, no, I think it's wrong that we make brackets for our BFF trans friends, because that's what's gone on. <laughs> and it's that own goal, if we're going to say that on the one hand, we have to respect pronouns and call them trans women, just as a way of meeting in the middle. And on the other hand, the minute that we're attacked by them, another writer who was very critical of Julia Long and Posey Parker's, wrote a piece saying, I was attacked by a man in a dress. And I'm thinking, wait, you're the same person that calls out these women as pollusive with the right. You write for the right almost entirely. And then you say, (laughs) it's mean when women say that they are he or men, but the minute you're attacked by a man in a dress as you put in your
1: article, that's okay. Like I can't keep it straight. The whole question of collusion to me is such a fascinating one as well, because I feel like my personal take on that is Women can talk to whoever they want, wherever they want, whenever they want. The, the main The main question is, like, is it safe? Like, I, you know, please don't go and have a, accept an acceptance interview with the Ku Klux Klan. Like, you don't want to be in that room. <laughs> you know, don't go and talk to the racist. Like, you don't want to be in that room. It's not about whether or not the woman in question has done something that's morally sound or not that question comes in when you think I mean the threat of quote-unquote you know talking to the wrong people is that you might compromise you might be tempted to make compromises because there's money involved and there's power involved and that is the nature of the threat of money and power is that it leads to compromise and I find it quite ironic that a lot of you know the you know quote unquote gender critical uh, you know uh, feminists who seem to have a big problem with uh, say, working with the right or whatever when it is just accepting a platform or being in the same room as as somebody from a different um political paradigm. You know some of the women have a big problem with that. Our women have already made all their compromises. they talk about trans rights, they call women she they've They've made those concessions in the interest of being popular, getting in the air of politicians i e rubbing shoulders with people in power and you know, people who have money and resources and yeah i mean i i I get it but yeah the, there's definitely a lot of i mean but the thing is i think um you uh, your um podcast with Robert J. Jensen you talked about that a bit like it, contradiction is part and parcel of the political landscape and political dis- public discourse at the moment it is absolutely full is so full of contradiction that I partly don't really engage anymore because I feel like there's just so much noise um and this is partly uh, like one of, the, one of the conclusions that I ended up drawing when I asked myself what had happened in my case and, and what is going on with these dynamics um, where, where women are falling into these, yeah, patterns dynamics. I started to conclude that it's actually, it's not a big mystery at all. It comes back to female socialization. Women are trained socialized, to be helpmates, you know, to be handmaidens, to be identified with men, to be invested in power, to see ourselves as needing to gain validation from men in power in order to um, feel legitimized and and have a legitimate, um, um, you know, mission. And it leads to this, I think that habit, I think that habit has both, has manifestations you know, in our individual lives, as we all know. I mean, that's part of the, the feminist analysis has got to do with feminine conditioning um, and female socialization. And this is how we end up participating in our own oppression. We know this, we do it politically also, and we do it politically also even when we have the intellectual tools not to do it, because the issue is not intellectual. The issue is feeling-based, it's about pain, it's about socialization. Political analysis doesn't free you of your a lifetime of habits instantaneously or automatically. So it's, it's inevitable that when you get a bunch of women together who have their conditioning in common, that's we do, we have the air conditioning in common. If you get a bunch of us together and 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 offer us all, you know, and we will find this p- political analysis, there will be a phenomenon where the majority of women will, will act on that analysis in a way that reflects the way we've been conditioned, i.e. they'll get into negotiation with men over it. <laughs> um, and that's where you see these kind of reformist movements arising, which are in fact not, I mean, they're women centred in word, you know, they're women centred maybe um, in, in, in some way, um, in, analytically, but um, the loyalties are quite evident to me. They, they want to redeem the legal system I don't see a lot of life in these movements I don't see them as being like I long for the day that um, we're building a women's culture you know that women love and in which in which women connect with one another I think that's the also the most dangerous thing that we can possibly do in terms of threatening the status quo like um, imagine imagine if we started building a movement that we we're in because we love it, like uh, rather than all this kind of, this burnout culture that is associated with gender critical feminism, where everyone is a volunteer for our own cause, which I find kind of strange. It's like, you know, actually Andrea Dawkin in one of her essays in um, Our Blood, she has this she has this quote where she talks about, Women on the Left, and she goes, I actually, she says, "Um, politically committed women often ask the question, how can we as women support the struggles of other people? This question as a basis for political analysis and action replicates the very form of our oppression. It keeps us a gender class of helpmates. If we were male workers, or male blacks, or male anybodies, it would be enough for us to delineate the facts of our own oppression, that alone would give our struggle credibility in radical male eyes. But we're women, and the first fact of our oppression is that we are invisible to our oppressors. The second fact of our oppression is that we've been trained for centuries, and from infancy on, To see through their eyes and so we are invisible to ourselves." She's saying this about women on the left, which is the paradigm from which many feminists come from, and I think it's no wonder, although it is more bizarre, but it, it is no wonder that we end up making a movement, a feminist movement, in which men don't have to be present at all, but we're still helpmates who are trying to negotiate with them and put them in in positions of authority to legitimize what we're doing or not legitimize it like and then showing women for the sake of gaining these these connections with men in power oh yeah so anyway i think i think that this is being stuck in this role of a helpmate um, of, of trying to negotiate with men, which so many women are so used to doing in their everyday lives in their marriages and their families and their workplaces. So used to being in negotiation that you know we're doing it in our political movements as well. Um, and part and parcel of that is repression, actually internally, not being honest with oneself, not being able to express your own actual feelings and part and parcel of that, as well as dissociating from women who do express them and who do tell the truth and who do show it when they're angry and who are willing to to undertake direct action in order to save their own lives.
0: I see that you're working on several projects, seven short illustrated books called Brief Complete Herstory. This series begins with the Big Bang and the Evolution of Life And it heads towards
1: book seven, neoliberalism. Can you talk about your project? You know, when you're talking about, you know, is is activism, like what are the limitations of activism itself? And um, my experience, really, I just hit a wall with it. I felt like I couldn't continue operating in the way that I had been, even if I wanted to, because it would have become a, like a kamikaze mission. When I was um, an activist and I was doing all sorts of things, like the, there was the Phantom and there was the Pride Parade, but I also, like I dressed up in a handmade tails costume and went to the ANZAC um, Dawn Parade and, um, Tagged on to the end of this military procession in my Handmaid's Tale outfit, and I went in the same outfit. Stood outside Parliament, like holding a sign saying, "Trans women are double plus good women." I actually have a penis costume that um, I <laughs> I went to. A, I mean, this is. I sometimes question this one, but I have a penis costume. It's a full body penis costume. I. it on and went to this women's gym which was um receiving a lot of attention in the media because a man was trying to sign up for the gym and i'd been trying to talk to them because they were actually my old gym and i was very attached to that gym and um they they didn't really they weren't very receptive fair enough they were under fire and getting enough flack but I wanted to do something and I wanted to show the double standard so I, I went there in my penis costume saying I wanted to be a member um which I sort of was in that moment and I uh, <laughs> and then and I was like I promise I'm a woman inside um which it was also true. but I did things like that so, and I thought, you know, I could hear the voices, like I was like, I knew that people were going to say that I was harassing women, at the gym, that I was targeting, you know, that I was like putting them under extra blah, 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 like I could hear all those critiques, but I thought, you know, ultimately, no one's really talking about the threat of men entering women's spaces, and that is a real threat of violence, and so if people want to argue about whether or not I should be able to wear a penis costume, make myself look like an idiot which is really like (laughs) then they can argue about that i'm gonna so i pulled some stunts you know and at the time i was doing that whilst bringing women together and also to bring women together and then once i could no longer be part of that group i wasn't going to do those things anymore because it would have been a completely different it would have been completely different like i i wasn't doing that stuff just to draw attention to myself you know or even the issue like I wanted I wanted to have a you know build a community which could work together and I couldn't do that anymore so but one of the things that happened was when I realized that I I didn't really have the group that I'd been hoping for um which was also in hindsight perhaps my own fault you know I I expected something to happen that didn't and um no one no one ever promised me anything like they didn't owe me what I thought would you know what I mean like they're free women like they can do what I want what they want is just I just happened to have have this particular vision in my head and then when I lost that I kind of grieved for it I really did I I went through this grief process and when I went through that grief process It it totally snapped me out of any last remaining kind of self-sacrificing attitude that I might have had about acting on behalf of all women at all times. Because what I realized when I had this grief feeling was how much I actually really do care about my own time, my own life, and my own energy because it was so heartbreaking to feel like that had been completely erased and completely invisibilized by other people. And when I felt how painful that was, I knew that I had to honor my own time and my own life and my own energy, even if I am only one woman and actually don't feminists care about the lives of just one woman. And can I do that too? (laughs) And so then that, that really, From then on, I really started investing much more in the long-term projects that I had been doing, um, but maybe not prioritizing um, and projects that involve, you know, sitting down and painting, which is something that is hard to justify Mm -hmm. if you're hell-bent on stopping a law from going through, tomorrow, you know, or trying to get in this air of this politician because the opportunity has just arisen because he just said this thing on the TV, and if you don't strike now, then you you know what I mean? Like that, it feels constant, you know, state that um, people get in with activism doesn't really allow for slower, more focused projects, and so um, my movement, my shift out, of that kind of activism has allowed me to um, invest much more in longer-term projects. Um, And yeah, so this is one of them. So um, it's, yeah, I've got this, uh, I'm making a series of books, they're all going to be very digestible and quite short, kind of like magazine size. and yeah there's seven of them I'm calling them my brief complete history because of the time span that they cover from the big bang to the present day Um, and I've been just slowly putting myself in a position where I could make something like that through I read very methodically and I read to fill gaps in my understanding and I've slowly you know yeah I've slowly been able to piece together this potted history Um, and make illustrations for it and so I'm really excited about being able to share that and in hindsight I hope that I don't sound bitter I know that I probably do (laughs) maybe I am a little bit if I'm honest but I hope and I, I kind of hope that I don't sound bitter about what happened to me because what I learned from it was so valuable and I'm so glad actually that what I'm what I feel like I'm more able to do now is cultivate my response to the things that are going on in the world rather than being in a constant state of reactivity and I think that that to me is the nature of the problem with pub- public discourse and the political landscape is that it is fundamentally and reactive and it's particularly heartbreaking when you feel like feminism is part of that because well the idea of of women stepping back to recognize, to to give ourselves the visibility that we're wanting first and foremost, and then on that basis cultivating our response and then through those individual responses building up a movement.